chapter twenty nine of beyond these voices this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org beyond these voices by mary elizabeth braddon chapter twenty nine everything was dead that had been vera's answer when claude asked despairingly if love was dead the words were in her mind now as she stood alone in the room where her poets and her actors and her philosophers looked at her from the white walls and where the sound of the great hall door closing heavily as her husband shut it behind him was still in her ears had he gone for ever was it indeed the end could love that had begun in ecstasy close in this grey calm she felt neither sorrow nor anger everything was dead she stood among the ruins of her life feeling as a child might feel when the house she has built of cards shatters suddenly and falls at her feet everything was over she had no thought of building another house no desire to patch up a broken life and begin again perhaps her husband loved her still and it was the gloom of this haunted house that had driven him to seek distraction in a baser love it was her fault perhaps and she ought to be sorry for him poor claude she remembered his gaiety the airy mockery that had enchanted her the quick wit that had struck fire and light out of dull things she remembered the joyous nature the light laughter the inexhaustible energy which made difficult things in the way of sport seem easy yes they had been happy utterly happy in the life of the moment shutting out every thought that was irksome every memory that hurt and it was all over and dead and she had nothing left but the shadows in this room the dead faces the words of those who were not that scriptural phrase had always moved her he was not her afternoons in mr simeon's library had been all she had cared for in the season that was ending she had gone wherever her husband asked her to go and had given the entertainments he wanted her to give but through all that brilliant summer she had gone about like a corpse alive that dreary simile had been in her mind sometimes when she thought of herself sitting in her victoria dressed as only the well-bred englishwoman with unlimited money can be dressed lovely in her fragile fairness admired and talked about she had gone about and held her own in a quiet way among crowds of clever men and women and her life had seemed to her like the end of a long dream her only vital interest had been in the voices she heard in francis simeon's shadowy room those voices were of living men and women but the words were the words of the dead she was not utterly unhappy the past was past and she had left off grieving over it for now she had a transcendent hope in the near future the hope of death she would soon have passed the river that they had passed guilia and her father the gate through which they had gone to a higher stage in the upward path of life would open for her and no matter by what slow ascent no matter with what feeble steps she would climb the mountain up which they had gone 
those emancipated spirits she had known for a long time that she was marked for death she had no specific ailment but in this last season she had felt her vanishing life felt the painless ebb of vitality and had measured by a flight of stairs by a pathway in the park where she walked sometimes in the early morning the waning strength of limbs and heart the dreadful sleeplessness of the first year of her widowhood had returned and her nights were almost entirely spent in thought and reading her brain never resting her heart seldom quiet although she looked forward to death as release she could not escape the boredom of medical treatment lady oakhampton whose daughters were all married and wanted nothing from parental affection except to be allowed to go their own way and not to be obliged to invite mummy to their choicest parties devoted herself more and more to her favourite niece who wasn't actually her niece but only a first cousin once removed since in those last days at disbrow she had seen the mark of death on vera's pale forehead aunt mildred who was really a warm-hearted woman had interested herself keenly in the vanishing life and had made unremitting efforts to combat the enemy she has simply wasted her life since her second marriage she said she has wasted her life as recklessly as claude has wasted her money but she shan't die without my making an effort to save her even if i have to take every specialist in london to portland place you'd better take her to the specialist said his lordship it would save your time and her money as if money mattered you could telephone for appointments and do the whole of grosvenor street and savile row in a morning with a good taxi a taxi when my niece has two superb daimlers no by the by the last claude showed me is an s c a t poor provana sighed oakhampton to think that nothing could induce him to buy a motor-car although he was a man to whom moments are money it was one of his few eccentricities to worship his horses he might have been here now if he had not been quite so fussy about his horses sighed her ladyship what do you mean he might not have used the door between the house and the stables the door by which he and his murderer came into the house on that awful night true assented her husband it was an infernally unlucky door and i suppose if poor little vera dies they'll carry her out that way to be cremated oakhampton you are too bad whoever said she was to be cremated nobody but it's the modern way isn't it and of course everything would be up to date how can you be so heartless and how can you use that odious expression up to date well i hope the poor girl will be warned in time and live to make old bones but she didn't look like it at her last party you'd better give her husband a good wigging it will be more useful than calling in the specialists i am utterly disgusted with claude he is throwing her money out of windows and behaving atrociously into the bargain i suppose you mean mrs ballenden well my dear that was bound to come vera has been too much in the clouds for the last year from what susan amphlett told me of her way of life in rome she was bound to lose her husband no man can stomach neglect from a wife unless all the other women neglect him and claude rutherford is not a negligible quantity 
lady oakhampton had tried her hand upon her young kinsman before this colloquy with her lord and had found him hopeless he turned the point of her lectures with a jest he was light as vanity he protested that his wife was alone to blame he adored her and thought no other woman upon this planet her equal in charm and beauty but since she had taken up with simeon and his spooks she had surrounded herself with an atmosphere of sadness that would send the most devoted husband to the primrose path in sheer revolt against the gloom of his house we are poor creatures he said and we have to be amused once only in the course of numerous wiggings did claude show anything like strong feeling and then emotion came in a tempest that scared his mild kinswoman she had talked to him about his wife's health vera is absolutely wasting away she said something must be done or she will not live till the end of the year no 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 he cried my god what do you mean is that to be the end is death to take her from me and leave me in this black world alone you have no right to say such a thing by what authority who has told you that she is in failing health i see her every day she never complains you must be blind if you don't see the change in her i don't believe there is anything seriously wrong she is as lovely as ever no i don't believe it you are cruel to come here and frighten me she is all i have in the world all all do you understand his head drooped suddenly upon the table by which he was sitting and she heard his hoarse sobs tearing his throat and chest and saw his long thin fingers writhing among his hair the boyish auburn hair with a glint of gold in it that foolish women had praised there is no need for despair claude i only wanted to awaken you to the seriousness of the case we shall save her in spite of herself i see you are still fond of her and yet and yet i have been a brute a senseless idiotic beast but that's all over lady oakhampton love her i would lie outside her door like that dog of hers all through the long night only to get a smile and a touch of her hand in the morning love her i loved her for five patient years loved her passionately and kept myself in check and behaved like an elder brother i the man no woman could trust love her the picture of her childish prettiness at disbrow was in my memory when i was going to the devil at simla you don't know what men are made of you only know the model english gentleman like your husband oakhampton has never given me any trouble except in his young days when he used to ride dangerous horses i know i have been exceptionally fortunate in my husband and of course i know that modern husbands and wives are utterly unlike us but i must say that your behaviour at your wife's last party was inexcusable the dear princess was sadly huffed and i doubt if vera will ever get her to her house again i don't think vera will try but she ought to try the princess hermione has been perfectly sweet about her vera doesn't care that's her worst symptom that i know of she has left off caring about things and that is a very bad symptom said lady oakhampton when jagford's wife showed signs of it i bundled her off to a nursing home for six weeks and she came out of it just in time for ascot and as keen as mustard as jagford said in his vulgar way she had been dieted and massaged and not allowed to see any one but her nurses and she was quite cured of not caring she romped with her children and ate jam pudding like one of them ah you see there were children sighed claude there was something for her to come back to 
vera and you ought to have had a family it is very disappointing said aunt mildred and the tone implied that when she said disappointing she meant reprehensible never mind she went on presently in a more hopeful tone don't be downhearted claude if doctors can cure her she shall be another woman before the end of the year you love doctors much better than i do said claude grasping her hands find the man who can cure her and i will worship him after this vera entered upon a wide acquaintance with the fashionable specialist the man who was invincible in treatment of lung trouble the only authority upon cardiac disorders the man who knew more about the nervous system than any other physician in europe the man who had given his life to the study of the digestive organs the hypnotic doctor and the mesmerist and finally as a condescension the all-round or common-sense man who might be consulted about anything and sometimes as it were by rule of thumb succeeded where the specialists had failed these gentlemen came to portland place at irregular intervals through the month of august vera resolutely refusing to leave london in that impossible month and lady okehampton again sacrificing her annual cure to the care of her niece as she had done in the year of mario provana's unhappy death lady okehampton having made this sacrifice almost the greatest which a woman of her age and position could make naturally allowed herself some slight compensation in fussiness she talked about her niece's health to boring point with her familiar friends with the result of booking the name and address of some infallible specialist hitherto unknown to her and this accounted for the spasmodic appearance of a new consultant once or twice a week in vera's morning-room all through that impossible month in which the doctors themselves were panting for escape from london to shoot grouse in scotland or do their own cures in bohemia after a season of hard dining vera was curiously submissive to these frequent ordeals she answered any questions that the great man asked her but she never volunteered information about herself and she always made light of her ailments the admission of a little worrying cough that was at its worst at night a slight palpitation of the heart after going upstairs was all that could be obtained from her by the most subtle questionings but lungs and heart told their own story without words she smiled when the nerve specialist asked if she slept well and again when he suggested certain harmless opiates which would ensure beneficent slumber she had taken them all she had exhausted susan amphlett's pharmacopoeia which contained all these specifics and others not so harmless when one physician after another for on this they were all agreed told her that she ought not to be in london in this sultry depressing weather while each advised his pet health resort she smiled sweetly and said she meant to remain in london till november when she would go back to rome i am fond of this house she said and the london air suits me london air is very good air answered dr selwyn tower who understood her better than the various new lights but not in august and september if you are to be in rome in november why not spend the interval in italy at verisi for instance a charming spot with every advantage no vera was not to be persuaded i like the quiet of this house after the season all i want is rest and silence she said and dr selwyn tower shot a despairing glance at lady okehampton 
your niece is absolutely charming but as obstinate as a mule he told her when they had their conference in one of the drawing-rooms all the doors and portieres were open and the doctor looked at the long vista of splendid emptiness with a faint shudder it is a fine house but a little depressing he murmured i call it positively uncanny but that is all in my niece's line she is dreadfully morbid i am glad there was no occultism or christian science when i was young at these words christian science the famous consultant shuddered worse than at sight of the empty rooms if your sweet niece is that way inclined we can do nothing for her he said no thank heaven that is not one of her fads and then the fashionable physician gave his opinion of the case or just so much of his opinion as he thought it good to give to an affectionate but not overwise aunt he found that the patient's strength was at a very low ebb she had been wasting her resources living upon her capital refusing herself the rest that was essential for so fragile a form so sensitive a temperament and so over-active a brain lady oakhampton had told him of the gaieties the rush from place to place from amusement to amusement the everlasting entertaining and being entertained and he talked as if he had been there watching and taking notes all through that wild career he was not going to extinguish hope so he kept up a cheerful tone throughout the conference there was nothing heroic in the treatment required rest and a soothing regimen not much walking but a great deal of fresh air drives in her open carriage to rural suburbs if she should insist on remaining in london a little quiet society the utmost care as to diet and constant medical supervision he would be glad to confer with mrs rutherford's regular medical man before he left london and he hoped on his return in three or four weeks to find a marked improvement this was all when questioned as to lung trouble he said that there was trouble but he saw no fatal indications yes there was heart weakness but nothing that might not be modified by care simple as she was lady oakhampton did not feel altogether assured by all this bland talk and the sound of the doctor's carriage wheels as they rolled away from the door recalled the moaning of the winter waves under the red cliffs at disbrow she repeated the specialist's diplomatic utterances to claude who did not seem to attach much importance to medical opinion all doctors talk alike he said i don't think vera's is a case for the faculty you remember what macbeth said to his physician lady oakhampton did not remember but she gave a sigh of assent that answered as well i'm afraid vera's is a rooted sorrow and god help me i cannot pluck it from her memory we had better leave her alone we can do nothing more for her we can't make her happy claude this is too dreadful are we to let her die cried aunt mildred with something like an elderly shriek is death so great an evil at least it means rest and there are some of us who can get rest no other way claude it is positively dreadful to hear you talk like that as if you cared for nothing in this life i don't and then lady oakhampton took him in hand severely and talked to him as a good woman but as a philistine of the philistines would naturally talk on such an occasion and after remonstrating with him for his want of religious feeling and even proper affection went on to reproaching him for spending his wife's money 
squandering her magnificent fortune with a reckless wastefulness that might end in reducing her to beggary no fear of that aunt mildred no doubt i have thrown money out of windows money has never been a serious consideration with vera and me we should have been quite as happy when we started on our venetian honeymoon if we had had only just enough to pay for our tourist tickets and our gondola just enough for the gondola and a cheap hotel money could buy us nothing that we cared for later when i knew what her income was i spent with a free hand but there's a good deal of spending in a hundred thousand a year lady oakhampton shivered and stirred in her seat uneasily that colossal income and nothing done for the needy members of her husband's illustrious house i wanted to amuse myself and to amuse my wife and amusements are costly nowadays so the money has run out pretty fast but there has always been a handsome surplus i see mr zabulin the banker one of my wife's trustees two or three times a year and he has never complained vera's charities are immense so there is really nothing for you to moan about lady oakhampton nothing cried vera's aunt with uplifted hands was there ever any one so feather-headed so feckless can you forget that when your wife dies her fortune dies with her no but when she dies i shall have done with all that money can buy i shall be able to pension the old stable hands and provide for my dogs out of my fifteen hundred a year and i can give my trainer half a dozen cracks that will make him comfortable for life you are very considerate about your stable and kennels i wonder if you have ever considered vera's obligations to those who come after her if you mean the roman cater cousins i certainly have not provana's heirs why of course not they will be inordinately rich when that splendid fortune is chopped up among them no claude if you had a proper family feeling which to my mind is an essential element in the christian life you would have thought of our herd of poor relations nicholas disbrow dying by inches in an east anglian vicarage and not daring to winter in the south for want of means or poor lady rosalba who is no better off than vera's grandmother and doesn't make half as good a fight as poor lady felicia did or mary disbrow jones who marries so wretchedly and is selling blouses in a shabby street in pimlico i think vera has done a lot for all of em i know she sent the reverend nicholas a thousand pounds last winter when his wife wrote her a doleful letter and she gave her blouse-making cousin two hundred and fifty pounds last week to save her from bankruptcy consider them forsooth do you suppose they don't ask to be considered every man jack of them down to the remotest connection by marriage they are as eloquent with the pen as professional begging letter writers they blister their papers with tears and vera never refuses she does not know how oh i know she is generous a thousand to that worthy man in the fens was handsome but that kind of casual help won't provide for the future and when our poor dear is gone there will be nothing may that sad day be long long off but in the meantime she ought to invest her surplus income and leave it to those who want it most and would use it best you may be sure i have no personal feeling but the best of us are not too well off and if there should come the general election that we are threatened with i doubt if chagford will be able to stand for north devon the ballot has made bribery more audacious and more expensive than ever i am told three half-crowns is the least the wretches will take they will ride a candidate's motor to death and then go and vote for his opponent let chagford talk to my wife if there's a dissolution said claude with a half-smothered yawn that expressed weariness and disgust 
vera is always kind sighed lady okehampton dolefully but she refrained from suggesting that when the dissolution came vera might not be there this was aunt mildred's last attack upon claude rutherford he took matters into his own hands after this and no longer depended upon accounts of his wife's health at second hand he took all information upon that subject from dr selwyn tower who had a great reputation at that period and whom he was inclined to trust the physician was more frank with the husband than he had been with the aunt though even yet he said nothing to extinguish hope he told mr rutherford that it would have been better for his wife to winter in the south or by way of experiment to try a short winter in the engadine coming down to ragaz before the snow melted but as the dear lady seemed strangely bent upon staying in her own house it would be safer to indulge her fancy lungs and heart were only a question of weakness the mind was of serious consequence and everything must be done to check the tendency to melancholia if we can make her happy we shall be able to deal with the lung trouble said the physician open air and good spirits might work a miracle dr tower naturally inquired as to parental history and was somewhat disheartened on hearing that the dear lady's father and mother had died young the former of galloping consumption during an open-air cure yet even this did not induce him to pronounce sentence of death nor did he allow mrs rutherford to support herself a desperate case though he insisted on having a trained nurse and of the best in attendance upon his patient as well as the maid louison the french girl might be all that mrs rutherford could require he admitted when vera told him she wanted no one else but you must allow me what i want pleaded dr tower with his most ingratiating air my treatment is of the mildest nothing heroic or troublesome about it but i must be sure that it is followed i must have some one about you who is responsible to me my nurse shall not be allowed to bore you if she is intrusive or disagreeable to you you can telephone to me and she shall be superseded within the hour vera submitted her indifference to most things even to those that concerned herself was one of her symptoms which made dr tower uneasy this woman will never help to cure herself he thought as he drove away with that far-off look in vera's face impressed upon his mind she does not want to get well she is not absolutely unhappy only indifferent something must have gone wrong in her life yet her husband does not seem a bad sort she was not unhappy she had been allowed to take her own way and to live as she wished to live in the silence and peace of the spacious house where the business of entertaining seemed to be at an end for ever whatever had been amiss in the life that was ebbing away seemed hardly to matter now that she was drawing near the other life her husband came and went and spent a good tale of time in a room talking with her or reading to her when she was too tired to talk there had been nothing said of his offence against her no utterance of that other woman's name they were friends again and could talk of the things that they loved literature music art of henry irving's hamlet of malay and browning both of whom she had seen at aunt mildred's house in her childhood and whose faces she remembered of books new and old they were as friendly and sympathetic as they had been in mario provana's lifetime before the dawn of love it was as if they were still at the same platonic stage all that had come after was like a lurid dream from which they had awakened tristram was again the true knight isult was sinless all that was best in claude rutherford was in the ascendant during these long slow weeks of silent sorrow in which he knew that the man with the scythe was at the door that nothing money could buy or love devise could save the woman he loved 
he had broken finally with that other woman finally for the fiery cup had lost its intoxicating power and the end had been a vulgar quarrel about money whatever was to happen to him he was safe from that siren's spells all his natural sweetness his sympathy and charm were for vera in those quiet weeks of september and october when there was nobody in london and the chariot wheels rolled no more in the broad roadway he was at his best in his wife's white morning-room where the faces of the immortals looked down upon him and where he was kind even to the dog she loved the irish terrier brought home after his half-year's quarantine who stretched his strong limbs and rough red-brown body against her satin slippers as she lay on her sofa a fragile figure shadowy in her loose white gown all that was best in this man the tenderness the sympathy was in evidence now a failure no doubt trivial and shallow incapable of deep feeling perhaps but a sweet lovable nature a nature that had made women love him whether he wanted their love or not it is very good of you to give me so much of your time vera said one day slipping her thin little hand into his which was almost as thin invalids are wretched company and i don't want you to have too much of this dull room i do not find it dull and it is no duller for me than for you it is never dull for me i have my faces they are always company your faces you mean those portraits byron scott browning yes they are always company i have looked at them till they are alive i have read walter scott's journals and byron's letters till i know them as well as if they had been my intimate friends when they were alive i know browning's letters by heart those sweet letters to the sweet wife shakespeare is different it is so sad that there are no familiar records one can only think of him as the poet and the creator genius that touches the supernatural i don't think it matters how little you know of the man his deer-stalking or his tardy marriage as long as you don't think there was no shakespeare and that the noblest poetry this world ever saw was written by the skunk who gave away his friend said her husband bacon horrible on one quiet evening when claude had been with her since his solitary dinner she said softly i sometimes forget all the years and think you are just the same cousin claude who took pity on me at disbrow when i was so shy that other people's kindness only made me miserable till you came i used to creep into any corner with a book rather than mix with my disbrow cousins who were so dreadfully grand and clever precocious geniuses mrs somerville's in the bud who matured into two of the most commonplace women i know and almost as ignorant as susan amphlett said claude but you must not give me so much of your time claude she said gently i love to be with you but i may slip away for the cambridgeshire he said the trivial side of his character coming to the surface she did not even ask if he were personally interested in the race there had been a time when she knew every horse he owned and made most of them her friends rejoicing in their beauty as creatures whom she would have liked to keep for pets rather than to expose them to the ordeal of the turf albeit she had followed their fortunes and speculated upon their chances almost as keenly interested as her husband but now they had become things without shape or meaning like all the rest of the outside world you need not be afraid of leaving me she said i have this good friend to keep me company smoothing boru's rough coat with her soft hand i wish my mother was still in town she would come to you every day 
she is very good but she and i have never been really friends i know she would be kind but she would talk of painful things i don't want to remember i want to look forward yes he answered in a low voice bending over her and pressing his lips on the pale brow there must be no looking back it was the first time he had kissed her since the night of the concert she looked up at him with a sad sweet smile and he held his hand in hers for a moment susan must come to you every day to keep you in good spirits he said no claude susie doesn't like sick people she sits by my side and chatters and chatters telling me all the scandals she thinks will interest me but i can hear the effort she is making her tongue does not run on as it used before i was ill and once when she saw a spot of blood on my handkerchief she nearly fainted i don't want too much of susie mr simeon will come and talk to me sometimes and his talk always does me good i wish i could think so i hate leaving you in london you ought to have gone to disbrow as your aunt wished you would have done better in that soft air no i should be better nowhere than in this silent house if i cannot be in rome there is nowhere else where i should like to be i want space and silence and no going and coming of people who mean to be kind and who bore me to death i want no fussing and talking about me i can put up with my nurse because she is quiet and does her work like a machine rome yes in the november afternoons when the world outside her windows was hidden in grey fog she longed for the beautiful city the place of life and light the city of fountains full of the sound of rushing water the dull greyness of london oppressed her when she thought of the long garden walks in their solemn stillness the cypress and ilex the statues gleaming ghostly in the dusk against the dark walls of laurel and arbutus the broad terrace with its massive marble balustrade on which he had leant for hours in melancholy medication thinking 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 as the multitude of church towers and the great dome in the hollow below her changed from grey to purple as the golden light died in the west and the young moon rose above the fading crimson of the afterglow it was sad to think that she would never see that divine city again and all that she had loved in italy Cadenabia, where her honeymoon had begun to the sound of rippling water as the boats crept by in the darkness to the music of guitars and italian voices singing in the light of coloured lanterns while the cosmopolitan crowd clustered in the narrow space between the hotel and the lake susan amphlett came nearly every day and insisted upon being admitted she had come to london for a week just to buy frocks for a winter round of visits but much more to see you my dear she said and then she recited the houses to which she was going and her reason for going to them which seemed to be anything rather than any regard for the people she was visiting she talked of herself as if she had been a star actress i am touring in the shires this winter she said i did haunts and dorset last year and was bored to extinction roger is happy in any hole if he can be riding to hounds every day and he had the blackmoor vale and the north haunts within his reach most of the time while i was excruciated by a pack of women who talked of nothing but their good works or their bridge and they were such poor players that the good works were less boring than the bridge talk dear lady sue would you call no trumps if and would you do this and t'other questions that babies in the nursery might ask over their toy cards then came a long account of the frocks that were being made for the shires and the scarlet topcoat to be worn with the grey habit which roger hated i think he would like me in an 
early victorian get-up with the edge of my habit touching my horse's fetlocks a large white muslin collar and a low beaver hat with a long feather those early victorian collars cost two or three pounds apiece my granny told me and those poor wretches who never changed their clothes till dinner wore them all day long and yet they talk of our extravagance as if nobody paid anything for clothes in those days and then when the houses to which she was going and the clothes she was to wear and her quarrels with her husband and her maid had been discussed at length susan began to talk about her friend lady o told me how ill you had been ma mia and of your curious whim about this house she says selwyn tower would have liked you to go to the transvaal and told her that two or three months in that delicious climate would make you a strong woman but finding you set upon stopping in your own house he gave way as your illness is chiefly a question of nerves it is a comfort to know that nespa mine shots yes of course it is a comfort i suppose with nothing amiss but one's nerves one might live to be ninety true dearest quite ninety susan answered shuddering susan amphlett was out of her element in a sick-room the mere thought that the friend she was talking to was marked for death seemed to freeze her blood her own hand grew as cold as the cold hand she was holding she could not be bright and pleasant with death in sight as she sat with vera in the library that had been provana's favourite room she felt as if there were someone standing behind the door in that inner room a door that had been left ajar there was someone waiting there whose unseen presence made her dumb someone not provana but another and more terrible shape vera she burst out at last why do you sit in this horrid room instead of in your sweet white den with byron and browning and all your dear people i like this room better now that my thoughts have gone backwards what can you mean by thoughts going backward now that i know time is measured for me so much and no more i like to live over the days that are gone it spins out my life to live the dead years over again this is the room mario loved his books are on those shelves the books that opened a new world for me the italian historians the italian poets in the first year of our life in this house before i was the fashion we used to sit here of an evening long evenings from nine till midnight talking 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 or mario reading to me he was a banker and a dealer in money but he read poetry exquisitely vera susan ejaculated suddenly and sat staring what's the matter i believe you love provana better than ever you have loved claude i don't know vera said dreamily she had been talking in a dreamy way as if she were hardly conscious that any one was listening to her perhaps you never were really in love with your second husband yes i loved him too much and after a perceptible pause not enough darling i can't make you out i'm not worth making out one thing i must tell you vera even at the risk of agitating you it is all over with that woman which woman which mrs bellenden there's never been so much as a whisper about any other since your marriage oh it is all over i thought so vera what indifference you might be talking of somebody in mars yes dear it is quite at an end they had a desperate quarrel quite the worst of many frightful rows there was furniture smashed i believe sevres and things and now she has consoled herself really a german prince one of the german attaches told me he would marry her if he dared 
well sweet i must be trudging i'm dining out one of those nice little winter dinners that i love you must make haste and get quite quite well this was what susy always said to a sick friend even when the friend was moribund the quite quite had such a cheering sound by the by lady o told me you have had the princess hermione yes she came to see me two or three times when she was passing through town that must have cheered you immensely she is devoted to you quite raves about you i hear in the highest circles get well dear and give a party for her when she is next in town susy kissed her and patted her hair and suppressed a shiver at the cold brow that her lips touched it felt like the brow of death yet vera's eyes were bright and there was a rosy bloom on the thin cheek susan was glad when she had got herself out of the house and was walking fast through the cheerful streets but she was sincerely attached to her friend i shall be fit for nothing this evening she told herself sadly but she was at least fit for her part of chorus and entertained the little dinner-party with a picturesque description of her fading friend dying slowly in that house of measureless wealth her income dies with her she explained and though i suppose a few pennies have been saved out of a hundred thousand a year and my cousin will get all that's left he will be a pauper in a year or two i dare say on this the company speculated upon how much might be left and all were agreed that there was a good deal of spending in a hundred thousand while one of the middle-aged men were so far as to make a rough calculation of the rutherford's expenditure in those five years of expensive pleasures but even after reckoning the dances and dinner-giving the yachts and balloons the racing stable and a certain amount of losses on the turf and at cards they did not bring the annual outlay above eighty thousand whereupon a dowager looked round with a smile and said you haven't reckoned mrs bellenden true now you mention her i take it there would be no surplus and then that remarkable lady and her german prince were discussed at full length dissected rather than discussed for when a woman is remarkable for her beauty and has spent three or four fortunes and is in a fair way of spending another there is a great deal of amusing talk to be got out of her End of chapter twenty nine